0: Major, can you hear us?
1: I can, loud and clear.
0: Okay, great. Uh, I'm going to bring everybody in. Looks like we got everybody. Major, when does the, uh, your podcast come out?
2: <laughs> so uh, hey. we, we will uh, turn that around uh, probably today in terms of editing it. Uh, we're not, we don't even edit it. We just put stuff on the front and the end of it, and we'll push it out as a, as a bonus episode probably either tonight or first thing tomorrow. Okay, yeah. so it'll be out quick. That was Frank. That was Frank? Yeah. Yeah, he's about a four. Okay. Wait, wait, what's the scale, though? What's the scale? One to 20. 200. 200?
1: 200? <laughs> for
2: The Caliendo
0: Cast. With Frank Caliendo, John Holmberg, Scott Long, and the rest of the Caliendo crew. It's the most important podcast in the history of Western civilization. Wait a second! I was a four out of a two hundred. Major Garrett, <laughs> our guest, uh, our former guest, is <laughs> <it was> really <laughs> great. This has been a great interview. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're calling you Minor Garrett. Exactly. Tiny little. That's,
2: I've never heard that. No, never.
0: not That's from exactly. this voice. Not <laughs> officially. How careful do you have to be on this podcast? By the way, so before I introduce, I want to introduce you to the audience. Yeah. So you are a White House correspondent, chief White House.
2: So, so my, I have a new title, uh, chief Washington correspondent. So that means I'm not at the White House every day anymore, which is by design. Uh, Yours? Uh, yes. Oh, okay. I was. just yes, not somebody say, else's mind. I designed mine.
0: it, major, <laughs> major. By the way, I've got other jokes. I've got people looking some things up for me right now. Other exactly. titles besides minor, because you've heard this so many <laughs> times. Apparently, Caliendo can't come up with a good joke.
2: No, um, so before we get started, I'm going to pour no, myself started, a drink. No, we started, just so you I started, know. I can't go pour myself a drink? No, absolutely. Lot, absolutely. Drink. Okay, good. I'm going to pour myself a drink.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> I don't like
2: him, guys.
1: My God, he's an alcoholic. He's an alcoholic.
0: What a oh, uh, what a jerk! We're gonna be changing. I I got I have to ask him too how much uh, he's worried about this podcast. I would. Oh I, yeah. He, he, um,
1: Did you pre warn him a little? He's listened to the podcast. Oh so my he, dear he,
0: lord! Yeah, so he's an uh, he's he's a professional. So he listened to the Dennis Miller episode. He's uh, listened to some other episodes for his podcast to know what he was talking about. Unlike us, who just bring people like Harlan Coben on and have we just ne- have never read
2: before so you got your what, booze major <laughs> what's he cooking it's a drink of the viceroy otherwise known as a gin and tonic there it is <laughs> yeah. hey I, i'm trying to be extra careful there's a quinine in tonic which is helpful in covid19 times so i'm just being extra careful
1: that's right TNT and splash of roses, lime juice, and pour it like we're friends, Major. Make exactly. a drink for everybody. That's the great <laughs> choice.
2: There we go. There we go. <laughs> ah.
0: I think we're going to get to see the real Major Garrett here. Oh
2: my God. Let's just Why start not? With that.
1: What have yeah. you always wanted to say that you've never been allowed to say? This <laughs> <It> just <happened. laughs>
2: No, this Born is ge- gentlemen. This is not my drop the mic moment. I I know you hoped it would be, but this will not be my drop the mic moment. There may wow. be one in my future, but today's not the day.
0: All right. So, chief, uh, chief war uh, got Washington. Washington.
2: I was going to say, how close have you been to a drop the mic moment?
1: There's got to be some frustrating times sitting in those rooms. You're like, I'm 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 flaming it.
2: Uh, no, no, no. I've never felt that itch at all. Um, because uh, part of politics and covering politics and wanting to cover politics is you have to have a kind of built-in uh absurdity buffer
1: (laughs) so it's extra duck feathers really yeah you
2: you just yeah you you just have to to know that okay there there there's a stunt going on in front of me and there's a political component to it there's maybe a policy component to it there's a acting or dramatic or theatrical part of it there's a choreography to it okay and you can either hate on that and say well this is just stupid and therefore i'm not going to pay attention or try to distill something that's of use to the audience if it is and if not move on uh but just know that you're there to witness and you're there to record and not be a theater critic um there's mantra- a, there a there's a component about political coverage that often sounds like a theater critic. And I think that's some of the laziest political coverage there can be
0: your mantra. We talked about just this on your podcast a little bit ago. Can you give our audience that a little bit of that? Because I think that's just a fantastic uh, way to go about your job. It's a very simple
2: formula. Uh, and I've done it at lots of different places. I was a print reporter for 17 years before I got into television. I'm a completely accidental television reporter It was never anything I aspired to. Uh, But I worked at CNN, Fox, CBS, National Journal, uh, The Washington Times in Washington. So I've been in Washington for 30 years and you could probably divide my career into 15 years at center left newsrooms and 15 years at center right newsrooms. Uh, I think that's made me a better reporter because I'm very familiar with the conversations in all the newsrooms and the different ways stories are looked at and evaluated. But my formula is very simple. Get all the most verifiable facts you can in the time allotted. And look, the time allotted is a key part of this job day to day. I'm not a magazine writer. I was U.S. News and World Report and National Journal. A a, a magazine piece has a lot longer time continuum, but a day-to-day reporter, which is mostly what I've been in, particularly in the the most recent part of my career, a television reporter where you literally have minutes at times before you're on the air, get every verifiable fact you can, distill it as clearly and concisely as you can, and then get out of the way. Have you you ever... Let the audience figure it out. Have
0: you ever finished a report and then gone back and seen things unfold and gone was i bamboozled i just i can't i tried to give the you know i gave the benefit of the doubt here and i you don't have to say what time period it was but just like oh my god how did i how did i not see that they they're using
2: us well okay uh i will say this about my my early career in washington i moved here in uh 1990 I had worked in three newspapers in three different cities before that. Two years in Amarillo, Texas as a cop reporter. That was my first job. Two years in Las Vegas, Nevada as a cop reporter. My third job was in Houston at the Houston Post as a general assignment reporter. That tended to send me in the direction of lots of disasters, plane crashes, earthquakes, massive hurricanes, and the like. Got to Washington and my job was to cover Congress. I had never even covered a city council before. (laughs) Or state legislature. And there is a complete language in all legislative politics, but there is a very specific language in federal legislative politics. And I didn't know any of the language at all. And I spent the first two or three years of my career just getting the crap kicked out of me by everyone on the congressional beat because they understood the language. They knew the players. I didn't know the language, the players. And I worked for a newspaper that most people in Washington considered to be, if not a joke, mostly a joke. (laughs) and that put me way, way behind, and it was an enormous career risk to leave what was then a great job at the Houston Post, the 14th largest newspaper in the country. It no longer exists, which is something I thought at the time would probably happen, and it would go out of business sooner rather than later, but I left a very good job at a very good paper with a great reputation to go to Washington to work for a very small paper with very little reach and a huge reputation problem, and if I had known all the difficulties I would encounter, I never would have done it. That's sometimes what happens in life. You are courageous, but you're more stupid than courageous. Right. You don't know what you're risking. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. But the goal was to get to Washington to see if I could hack it, to see if I could figure this out. And the first couple of years were brutal in terms of every single day. I would read my competitors and know that I had just been running circles. That the politicians ran me in circles. That the other writers ran me in circles. I'd show up to things an hour later and would be, leave the. You ever in that situation? You run to something. You're like, "Where's everyone going?" Oh, it's already over. Yeah, that happened every day.
1: It's that bad dream nightmare scenario that you yeah. can't get doors open, or you're always yeah. the last guy in.
2: That's horrible. Yes, and it was. And and you know, there were times when I would ride in the elevator and the Senate or the House, and someone would look at my press credential and see Washington Times, and they would just curl their lips at me like I was a leper or something. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, this is this is like the closest thing I'll ever be in politics. I got to win people over one at a time. And it worked over time. Uh, most people found that I was a good reporter and solid, and the things that you do reputationally, is you just work the phones, you make calls, you build a reputation, one story at a time, one encounter at a time. And I'm still here. So Did you find that you actually out. had
0: to become a
2: politician in a way to cover politicians. I mean, it, you have to navigate at that point, right? In a way, in a way. And, and I don't mean a politician, in the sense of over promising or something, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, or, or thinking that if I don't win you over, my career is over. I didn't think about it that way, but you have a job to do. Mine was covering Congress and you make, I made a lot of early mistakes. I just didn't understand the process. I mean, The process, particularly the United States Senate, I won't go into great detail, but it's just Byzantine upon Byzantine upon Byzantine little different ways in which things work at the committee level, things get to the floor, how they're held off the floor once they get to the floor, how you can block something with a different array of amendments, and then there's another device that you can use to block that, and all of these intricacies. And they are... at in both respects at simultaneously mind numbing and fascinating the mind numbing is, Oh my God, there's all this language and all this intricacy and it's like looking at a Swiss watch and you think, how can I keep looking at a, the innards of a Swiss watch every single day? The
0: booze is getting in. Maybe yeah. Listen to in. that.
2: <laughs> also i've also frank
1: watched him lick his fingers twice and i'm yeah. pretty sure that's frowned upon in the white house
2: <laughs> happily can't go it's on my house go. it's my house and so okay. my rules apply <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay continue i'm sorry <laughs> swiss What's watch <laughs>
2: What's so that's, that's, the that's the mind-numbing part of it the fascinating part of it is that's how things happen or don't happen right. and getting to that part of it why things happen and why they don't happen, and the people who hold the keys are the people who have mastered these procedures, mastered this language, mastered these intricacies. Robert Caro wrote three volumes on Lyndon Johnson, one and a half of which were devoted entirely to this science that Lyndon Johnson mastered. And Robert C. Byrd, who I covered, also mastered it. And Robert C. Byrd made things happen and stopped things from happening because he understood the rules. So All of that was part of my education and all of that was, as I learned it, communicating that I valued it to people I was covering. And once they get the idea that you're not just there to cover the press conference or the day-to-day thing, but you really want to dive in to the institutional intricacies to know where the story is actually heading, then they take you seriously and... You get better stories and you understand things and you can can communicate them better.
1: But do they take you seriously because they know that, you know, the ingredients to the cake and they yes. can manipulate that or because they can they understand that they can't mess with you? Which side right. is the more dangerous? So
2: so it's a little bit of both. And, and, and in comedy, you uh, I'm sure know uh, that some audiences are easier than others and some audiences are willing to laugh no matter what, and they're kind of putty in your hands, and then some audiences are a little tougher, and you've got to work harder, and you've got to hit it uh, on time and with a, a kind of elevated style and approach. The same is true in politics. Politicians know an easy mark, and for a couple of years, I was a very easy mark. Very easy mark.
1: How did they take advantage of that, though? What was your first lesson to go, oh, I see what I'm stepping?
2: Well, um, I, I can't remember a spe- specific example, but. Um, that's the drinking. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but uh, bad questions, um, where your question is just a, a day behind the news or a day behind the next part of the machinery. And other reporters look at you and they look at you, and almost always they'll say, Oh, that's a really good question, mm-hmm. which it's not. And they know it. And if you're wise, you'll know it. Is it like a blackjack
1: table where you screw it up for everybody else when you go down that road?
2: No, oh. no, quite the opposite. Uh, oh. when, when, you, when, you're, when you're a doofus, uh, you just give everyone breathing <laughs> space. And they're like, oh, well, we don't have to worry about that guy. <laughs> Maybe he'll catch up next week, but he's still way behind us.
0: Do you find that even harder now? Or uh, 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 the, I should say, the ramifications of that. Do you find that, it, because you can get information so readily now, if you're behind the news you look like an even bigger idiot because you can have everything at your fingertips. You know, if you're 10, 15, 20 years ago, people might not have had the access. Now you have access to everything. You have to be studying constantly not to look like an idiot in a room of your peers.
2: Precisely. And um, that's part of the pressure aspect of television. That's less prevalent in print reporting because in television, you got to stand up in front of people and do it while they're sitting there. Uh, a live shot in the briefing room, which I used to do all the time when I covered the white house on a daily basis or in the East room or anywhere else. And people are listening to you before the event or distilling it right after. And you either have it or you don't. And everyone can judge that instantaneously. And that's one of the pressure parts of the job. And you've got to learn how to deal with that pressure. And there's only one way to do it. Reps, reps matter, reps matter in sports, reps matter in trial, attorney law, Meaning, how often do you go before a jury and what's your approach? Reps matter in television. And there's no substitute for doing it over and over and over again. Now, some people never catch on and wash out. Some people catch on and make a pretty decent career out of it. I'm still trying that part.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What part could you go back and say, oh, man, knowing what you know now? One thing that stands out in your head, time machine.
2: That's really hard. Um, There's so many. There, yeah, because there are. <laughs> there are so many. Like, for example, um, I often tell people that the first presidential campaign I covered was 1992. And that's when Bill Clinton went through all of the torture of New Hampshire and then ultimate near triumph of New Hampshire. People mm-hmm. of this generation think he won. He didn't win New Hampshire. He actually lost it by 10 points to a guy named Paul Songus a name completely lost to the mists of history. But Bill Clinton that night declared himself the comeback kid when he was within like six and a half points. And he got out of dodge as rapidly as he could because he knew where the numbers were heading, but six and a half points looked like a good second. So I'm the comeback kid away we go. But that had Jennifer flowers. It had inhaling, uh, or not inhaling, or I never inhaled. I smoked pod, whatever draft dodging, Jerry Brown, uh, And all these other components, I'd never seen a presidential campaign up close. There's a thousand things I got wrong covering that campaign. And every day was a massive learning experience. That was my, I'd been in Washington for two years. So my first presidential campaign, I've just got sort of Congress a teeny bit figured out that I'm thrown into a presidential campaign. And I don't figure any of that out out at all. Um, Everything was a learning curve, the steepest possible. And I just know, that all I did back then was tread water. And when you're treading water, you don't ask yourself stylistically how you're doing it. You just ask yourself, I'm sure not, I'm not drowning, am I? No, okay, then keep going. Survival mode. Absolutely, absolutely. Sanity.
1: How fast did you think about this? Like at that point, are you thinking, this is what I want to do, or I got to get through this and out of this?
2: Through this, um, yeah. because uh, if I was going to make a career in Washington, I couldn't make it for the rest of my life at the Washington Times. And by the time uh, 1996 rolled around, uh, I was a very well-known congressional reporter. I was one of the few reporters that saw the Gingrich revolution coming, uh, told my editors the night of the election, Republicans are going to win back and control of the House for the first time in 40 years. I told them that early in the day, they changed everything around uh, because I had sort of paid a lot of attention to both approaches to power, both the Democrats who held power at the time and Republicans who were fighting very hard to get it. I was very well versed in their approach. So once they got power, I was a story I was able to cover very well and times better than the Washington Post. That was a, a moment where I discovered that all that hard work had paid off. I became the deputy national editor in 1996. I supervised the entire campaign coverage in 1996. And then I left. I basically tapped my career out there and I left without a new job. I had a contract for a second book, which I wrote. And then quite happily, I landed the U.S. News and World Report at the magazine, uh, which at the time back then was one of three very competitive weekly news magazines. yes. That time did exist in America, <laughs> <laughs> and that was a, that was the the job I thought would be the cap of my career. Literally, uh, one day I was at my office at U.S. News and World Report in 1998, and Michael Barone, who's one of the greatest uh, chronicles of American politics of our time, knocked on my door and asked me a question. And I'm like, okay, I've pretty much done it. Michael Barone asked me something (laughs) that he thought I would know about politics, you know, not about, you know, where, where's the Splenda, but but about politics. And I thought uh, I've, I've reached the apex. This is it. I've, 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 I've arrived, I've done it. And then uh, CNN uh, offered me a job to cover the white house and I took it and I threw myself into a complete, New deep end, and I I don't know what your thoughts are about this, gentlemen. But for me, uh, I have found that uh, increasing the fear factor in my career has been a very important part of it.
1: Yeah, that'll motivate you a little bit
2: to uh, say to myself, "All right, it's been X number of years. Am I afraid anymore?" Right. And if I'm not, then I start saying, "I better find a way to get afraid again."
0: Hmm. Scott, you. I'm
3: curious. Yeah, I'm curious. Major, I was a journalism major in college myself, and I wanted to be a print journalist. You started off that way. Half your career was almost being a print journalist. What made you feel like you wanted besides the fear factor? Did you feel like you were always like a number one draft pick because your hair that they were always looking (laughs) like you had you had too good a hair for print journalism and. I mean, look at that hair. It's amazing.
1: It's ridiculous. Yeah, I got to be honest yeah.
0: with you. It's almost He Man right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that makes, what's that the makes Holmberg
2: Skeletor. Yeah.
0: Oh.
3: yeah. I'm
2: well, Beast And I see we are at
1: odds again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I a, 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 a brief uh, comment about the hair. So, <laughs> like all of us. Please, very um, brief. Well, yeah. not all. I was going to say, this is going to hurt me. So. I haven't seen uh, my stylist in quite a while, but the good news is,
1: look at that.
2: This oh, is getting God. me ready for my summer stock audition for the Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> the dude. <That> good. <laughs> or Reno, if you're not into the brevity thing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Where, as a kid, did you... So, So I wanted to be so to to your question, though, when I was at school, the University of Missouri, my alma mater, uh, which which I love because it transformed my life. Best decision I ever made um, professionally. I went there and my mother said, well, you're going to be a broadcaster uh, and I'm paying. So that's how it's going to (coughs) go. And I intended to be that I went there to be a broadcaster. I worked at the student radio station for two years and then I went into the J school and I took one semester of television and sat down there with the lights and tried to edit the pieces and the microphones and all the equipment and all the crap. And I hated every part of it, every part of it. I hated the way it changed people's personality when they saw me unpacking all this garbage. I thought I lost the intimacy. I lost the importance of human contact because of all the equipment and against the advice of everyone, everyone, I quit and went to newspapers. And built my career there as a print reporter. And my only aspiration in life wasn't to make a million dollars. It was to write one book. And I've happily been able to write four. Not one of them is sold. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, this in, I have this amazing ability to talk publishers into having me write books and putting, putting an advance on the table in front of me. And they never sell. But, you know, you can't have everything in life, I guess. But print is where I always wanted to be and always where I thought I would stay for my entire professional life and then uh, a quite unexpected event happened late in 1999 when frank says no then the bureau chief of cnn said you want to be on television i thought what have i got to lose wow
0: what, what i was think his it informed you? you
2: what was his reasoning to put you on television
0: he just liked the way you reported or where does that come from
2: true story so uh and i've told the story uh before uh but I'll share it with you. So my ex-wife uh, was being interviewed by Frank Sesno. She was a television reporter and he offered her the job of being the second white house correspondent for CNN. When my ex-wife went to that interview, I fully expected her to take the job. She did not. She turned him down and Frank Sesno said to her, you know, um, I've gone through all the tapes. I've gone through all the people who've applied I'm really at the sort of at the end of my rope. Can I ask you for a recommendation? And my ex-wife said, I'm not going to offer you a recommendation on a do- job. I just turned down. <laughs> I'm not interested in filling the slot. I've just rejected. And he said, all right, let me rephrase the question. Who's the best reporter, you know, and quite generously, my ex-wife said, "Oh, well, that's my husband, major Garrett. He goes, Oh, I like him. What's his phone number. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I swore. True. True. Story. <laughs> I'm at U S news and World report. He calls me up, uh, leaves a voice message. I happened to be on another call. Frank says, no, I'm sitting here with your lovely wife. She doesn't want to work for me. Do you call me back? Wow. And that's how it went down. Wow. So
1: there's zero qualifications for this job.
2: I went into interview and Frank says, <laughs> no, said, can you do television? I said, how the hell would I know? <laughs> I don't like said, carrying I around said, the junk. <laughs> I said, you're the TV guy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you asking me for i'm the least qualified person in this room to answer that question i said it's your it's your it's your risk frank wow if you want which, me if you want me take me if you don't don't which but kind I've of got a great team? i've got a great life in print journalism if this fails that's where i'm going back it's your it's your shot you want to take it go for it and he hired me and and uh, the rest uh is more or less history
0: it goes back but, to your mantra. But, it goes back to your mantra, though, of I'll give you the facts. This is who I am. You yeah. decide. You decide. Yep. You live your do you live your whole do you think you live your whole life that way? I mean, some of us like if you ever if you've ever met yeah. a car a person who's in a used car salesman or even a car salesperson, yeah. and they, they they can't stop being that person. They're making a <laughs> deal to pass the gravy. That's yeah. do you find yourself almost reporting in life?
2: Yes. Yes. <sighs> So let's get a little psychological for a second. <laughs> so um, my dad was a very strong uh, disciplinarian, uh, kind of volatile. And uh, the house, therefore, had a eggshell quality to it. And I was the youngest of three and uh, loved my dad. And as every child reveres his father, especially when you have an odd name like I do major, and that happens to be your father's name. Uh, you look up to him, possibly even more. But there was definitely an eggshell quality to my childhood, and I adopt I adopted a very strong set of coping, listening to very small cues from my father about what his mood was and his personality was. And of you remember the Zippo lighter? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So any of you who are familiar with the Zippo lighter knows that it has a very distinctive sound when it closes. A distinctive sound when it is closed lightly is a very soft brushing of the metal and a closing, little teeny click. But if you close that Zippo harshly, if you snap your wrist, that metal makes a very distinctive and ear-cracking sound that you can hear from a great distance. I know because I spent much of my childhood listening to my father close his Zippo lighter. He smoked about three packs a day. So that was kind of the eggshell Quality of, of, the, of the psychic environment of my childhood. So uh, as my current wife likes to observe, uh, and the only other wife I will ever have, let me emphasize that. <laughs> well, let's see what um, kind of job she gets you.
4: Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Always marries his agent at out <laughs> yeah.
2: She said, so uh, as a child, you had a very hard time asking questions of your father, which I did. So quite naturally in your career, you progress to the point where you ask the father of our country questions all the time.
0: <laughs> oh man,
2: I was, I, I that parallel,
0: walking on eggshells, be very, very careful, major. <laughs> <Zippo time. laughs> hey.
2: Yeah. So, uh, I, I have lived in that space of here are the facts in front of me. Um, my wife's got a PhD in political science and she will ask me a question, with some frequency, what do you think is gonna happen? I will answer her the same way every time, I don't know. She said, no, no, come on, what's your theory? No theories, here's what I know is in front of me, here's what I think these three, four, five sets of facts suggest about the future, but that's it. And she said, well, don't you have a theoretical construct? No. Hmm. Major, how does that
1: work when you're like shopping for like (laughs) cereal? Like, you can't look at it and go, well, we got an option here of blueberry or frankenberry. This is what's in front of me. Now somebody needs to make a goddamn decision because I'm not going to do it.
2: Yeah, that's where keto comes in. So it's just blackberries.
1: (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Okay, good. You've narrowed it all down. you got a plan for everything. That's genius. (laughs) That's funny.
0: Do you ever think about, was there ever another track you were on? to not be a, a or what did you think about being before you went into journalism? Cause you just, you basically right. started with, you know, going to uh, Missouri mm-hmm. and the broadcast uh, J school there. Yeah. But was there an, an Avenue that major Garrett might've been in, in, an astronaut or something?
2: No, there are two things I wanted to be before I decided to be a journalist. And it really was a process of elimination. I wanted to be a major league baseball player or an actor. <laughs> And all those uh, smoked out by about the time I was twelve and a half years old. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah, you had the hair for the
0: acting, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> back to the hair, okay? Yeah, well, I, to I like it, back cool. back to what, the hair.
3: it. You know, May, Major Garrett went to Missouri, and allegedly Brad Pitt was in journalism school for at least two of those same years. You were there, so you yes. were never the best-looking guy <laughs> there. <laughs> in, uh, in columbia
2: no no i was about the 700th best looking guy <laughs> i wasn't even the best looking guy in my fraternity class um no i i people ask me all the time did you see brad pitt did you see brad he was in j school when you were there no <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now, that doesn't mean he wasn't there yes. we know we right. do know because it's recorded history i think he fell six credits short because he said you know i don't really need this i'm gonna go be an actor a uh, good call brad yeah, nicely <laughs> done. But so also, power, power also, device. also Cheryl Crow was there at the same time. Oh, And because I was not only a, a journalism student, but I also got a degree in political science, two degrees in four years. So I was extra, extra busy. So Busy my senior year, I didn't participate at all in my uh, fraternity's uh, Greek Week uh, collaboration with a sorority whose name I can't remember, but it was Cheryl Crow's sorority. And of course, they won Greek Week because they had Cheryl Crow as the centerpiece. <laughs> and I have two fraternity brothers who, to this day, some 30 years later, still live off the fact that after they won, they were in a hot tub with Cheryl Crow in Columbia, Missouri. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And all I can say is I wish I could live off that too, but I can't (laughs) because I was writing some story on A12 for the (laughs) Columbia Missourian.
1: (laughs) Yeah, That's amazing though, because you look at that and you think of uh, like college journalism and how different it is. If you could go back, I'm sure you have to a lot, go back and tell them, here's what you'll never learn here. What is it?
2: So I, I do go back all the time. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, the president of the Missourian Publishing Association, which is the board of directors that oversees the Columbia Missourian, the only newspaper in uh, American colleges that is a day-to-day city newspaper. It's not the student newspaper, not the college newspaper. It covers the entire city and county around Columbia, Missouri. It travels with the, the sports teams. It covers the board of curators. It has the largest capitol bureau in jefferson city of any newspaper in the entire state of missouri larger than the associated press st louis post dispatch kansas city star and i go back frequently and i say the thing that you can't learn here that you will learn in the real world is that snarling people snarl and they will try to terrify you they will try to threaten you with your job they will try to tell you that you can't do what you do. And what you have to remember is you are constitutionally protected in doing what you do, but you are also constitutionally invested with responsibilities to do that well. What you learn in Missouri will teach you how to do that well, but it can't teach you how to deal with that intimidation unless you have it inside yourself to resist it. And that's the hardest thing to do because people will scream at you. And back to my volatile father, I don't handle that well. And you've got to figure out a way to learn how to deal with that. And that takes time and it takes practice and it doesn't come easy. Wow.
1: And there's a politician that screamed at you in the past. We all know this this has happened several times, but there are certain times when uh, like that comes in handy and that can't be taught. That's something that's innate in you because you've seen people lose it before. Mm -hmm. I'm
2: sure. Sure. Of course. And, and I will tell you, um, Nothing terrified me more. I mean, uh, Bill Clinton got mad at me. George W. Bush got mad at me. Barack Obama got mad at me and Donald Trump has gotten mad at me, but nobody scared me more than the chief of police, Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> really? Yeah, <laughs> because that was my first job. And, yeah. and, and if that ends and if I'm fired and if I've got it wrong and the police chief is up the nose of my managing editor and the publisher, I'm done. Yeah, I'm cooked. And when the chief of police calls you up and says, you come down to the police station, I'm going to drive you out to this crash scene. I'm going to show you how you got all these things wrong. And you go and you you are thinking to yourself, hey, why is he so mad? Why is he taking this so personally? And am I going to lose my job? And in the end, uh, it was a lot of show on his part. It was a it was a way to push me back. It was a way to get me to back off. Uh, for a while, it was nominally successful. It did scare me a little bit, but that's a much more terrifying experience than having the president of the United States yell at you. Talk
0: because about that for a second. Give us a little bit about when uh, the, the first time, because I'd never paid a lot of attention to politics, but I saw you basically get crushed by President Obama years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. And uh, go through that a little bit. The, the question and the right. And you were at Fox News at the time, right? No, I was at CBS. Oh, you were at CBS then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so that's
2: even. People think I was at Fox, because right? It was I a did tough, just in my brain that, question. that went, yeah, right. because it was a tough question for the president. So, the event is in the East Room. It's about the Iran nuclear deal, and that had been a project for the Obama administration for years, and I'd been through. Numerous briefings with senior administration officials all the way up to Vice President Biden about the the mechanics of it. I wasn't there covering the negotiations. My colleague Margaret Brennan was in Geneva and all of that. But I was viewing it from the perspective of the White House. And there's another parallel part of the story, which is American hostages, Americans being beheaded and the fate of them at the hands of ISIS and other really bad actors And the parallel part of that story was the administration for its own purposes, and I write about this in my book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, um, they wanted to minimize exposure and public dialogue about American hostages so it didn't appear that they were so valuable that they would be stronger bargaining chips and maybe be in more danger. And that was a constant bit of sort of behind-the-scenes commentary we were getting from the Obama administration, and it made logical sense. But I began over time to have my misgivings about that and whether that was really the best approach. And I began to ask myself, well, is that serving the hostages' best interests or is it maybe serving the interests of those who don't want to have the constant pressure of it and go through the Jimmy Carter nightmare of the Iran hostage crisis of that era? Anyway, I was just having doubts about it. I I wasn't accusing anybody or anything. I hadn't reached any judgment about it, but I was having doubts about this whole approach. So along comes the nuclear deal, and President Obama has a press conference in the East Room And he's clearly in a very upbeat mood. He really thinks this is a significant accomplishment on policy bases. And he goes through a very long and enthusiastic description of it. And then he starts going around the room, uh, calling on reporters to ask questions. And as I had for every press conference, I had about 10 in my notepad, at least 10. You always have at least 10 and other reporters go before me and I'm crossing them off. I was like the eighth or seventh or eighth reporter called on. And there was really only one topic that hadn't been addressed. Only one. The Americans who were in captivity. And I could see that all the other newsier questions were being asked and answered. And I kept thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be called on, but if I'm going to be called on, I'm going to raise the hostages. and I'm going to raise it hard because their lives matter. And I've made a turn in my own mind professionally about, no, I've decided right here and now, as I'm sitting here in the East Room, I'm going to give them, vo- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring that up and I'm going to bring it up hard. So I did. And the phrasing of the question and the president and I had been through this process before I had, because I knew of President Obama's approach to questions. He takes a very lawyerly approach to questions. And the more you can construct a question that takes away his exit ramps,
1: mm.
2: the more he appreciates it. There were other times when the president said, "You know, Major, I really got to hand it to you—the way you construct these questions—because he knows I've already taken out three of the four, or maybe all four, of the easiest exit ramps."
0: It's almost as though I have a Zippo lighter, and you are <laughs> walking on eggshells. <action. laughs> so continue. I'm sorry.
2: So I put the question hard. Uh, how can you be content, Mr. President, with this deal? when the conscience of the nation, the courage of the nation is left unaccounted for. And he did not like that and he reared back and I was sitting in the front row and I knew as he reared back that I was gonna get it. And I said to myself, look, there's a cuts camera right over there. A cuts camera is the alternate camera, the alternate angle at any White House event. There's the head on, which shows the president, whoever it is at the podium, and then the cuts camera to the side. And the cuts camera goes from the podium Whoever's asking the question, or any reaction shots that might be newsy. And I said, All right, I'm gonna be on the newsy end of this reaction <laughs> shot. Oh god. So blank, nothing, nothing. I said, get ready for it. It's coming. He's gonna whip out the two by four and beat you senseless. And don't blink, don't even bat an eye. And I didn't, because here's the deal. I get to ask and he gets to answer, whoever the president is. That's it. And once I'm done asking, I've got to take whatever comes because he's the elected president and he has every right to say whatever he wants or someday she wants about a question asked. And once you've stopped asking, your prerogatives, your privileges have ended and the country gets to judge whatever comes next. And it did. (laughs) for about the next three days.
1: (laughs) Do you get a chance to confront him on that after the fact? Not necessarily while he's president, but years down the
2: road. Oh, no. So, so, yeah. So uh, uh, that was a really topical and uh, conversation-driving encounter. I went into the press secretary's office that afternoon. I just stuck my head in, and I said to Josh Earnest, we're good, right? He goes, yeah, it's just business. Hmm. Wow. Meaning... You did your thing. My guy did my thing, and we move on.
3: Yeah.
2: The president and I have never lost our relationship. Uh, for ex- another another story. You didn't ask about it, but when I was at Fox during the 2004 campaign, I did a very extensive set of stories about the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Which, and they were very hard, and they were very examining of the entire John Kerry record about all of that. And I never lost my relationship with this campaign, never lost my relationship with John Kerry because every story was hard and fair and they were always given ample, ample opportunity to respond in whatever way they wanted. And they were hard and persistent. But the campaign never cut me off. The campaign never accused me of doing anything that was journalistically anything other than aggressive. Did they wish I would go away? Yes. But they never could accuse me of getting my facts wrong or doing anything that was violative of any understanding of how political journalism works or how investigatory journalism works. And to this day, the people around John Kerry and the former secretary himself, and I have a a cordial professional relationship. It's just the way it works. If you do your work well.
0: If you aren't making somebody mad once in a while, do
2: you think you're not doing your job? Absolutely. You have to be annoying. You have to be an annoyance and not because you want to be, but because that's part of the process of pulling things out to public view and pressurizing this concept of accountability. Accountability is just a word if there's no force behind it. Transparency is just a word. I hate the word transparency, actually, because people use it when they don't mean it. Uh, The Obama administration said it was the most transparent ever because it disclosed all these previously undisclosed checkpoints of who came in to see people within the West Wing. They said that's no one's ever done that before. That's massively transparent. Okay, fine. That's a metric of transparency. But you had a lot of meetings off campus. So they weren't caught in this (laughs) database. So you were just doing the important stuff in a different venue. Okay, but accountability is real. And when politicians feel the heat, they say things to explain what they'd rather not explain or go into details they would rather not go into. And the only way to get that is to make them mad, is to annoy them with your persistence. Now, there's a line, and it's hard to define. It's an intangible part of your experience. Part of your reps teach you where that line is, but you got to cross it early on when you're young just to figure out where it is
1: when transparency and accountability are relative to whomever is answering,
2: and to the audience that's receiving,
1: okay, then it becomes it's then it's then it's my job to discern what what's it's your job
2: to decide whether it meets your standard. Okay. For example, yeah. uh, on Friday on CBS this morning last week, I was asked, "Did Joe Biden's explanation about Tara Reid was it good enough?" I said, "I don't. That's not for me to decide. I'll never decide that." I said there are three metrics, though. Is it consistent with the Kavanaugh standard? Is it transparent for the public satisfaction? And did he seriously enough take this underlying charge because the times we're in now require a seriousness that weren't, that didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago? So those are three ways that the Biden campaign knows it will be judged. Voters will make the determination. So in that situation, I don't call whether or not it was good or bad or successful or unsuccessful. Again, that's theater critic stuff. Right. No, not my, not my bag but I do try to explain the metrics by which the campaign knows it's trying to meet a standard that I think is, basic reportage and basic explanatory journalism. And I try to stay within those guardrails as best I possibly can.
0: See, Scott and I talked about this because we've talked about. Uh, I love that. Fra- Frank Grace yeah. is
2: being late. Th- well, I, I, I love you, that. Because I saw Scott. <laughs> Mr. Mr. The Scott president. I, I love it. that. President. Uh, 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 Frank. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're the president now. Hold on, hold on, hold How on. How does hold it feel do, to know. be on the <laughs> other side, right, Major? Here, 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 let me do it. Let me do
2: it. It's one the only time I'll be able to do this, like Trump.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that was
2: good.
1: Does he do tell people out? It? I tell you, I, I've never seen it. Does he do Oh, watch.
0: Roll him? the oh, tape. I'll never not oh, see it. We're gonna start doing it. Hello, Roll the tape. Magic, here we go. <laughs> I call
1: this Wonder Woman's Magic lasso yeah. Maybe it would be even better. <laughs> if behind him, if behind him he's like, All right, let's see who's next, spins a wheel.
4: All
3: right, here we go. Good luck. I hope oh, that'd it's be you. great.
1: It comes up Major Garrett. I don't want to do that one. Let's do it out there. <laughs> People say he's a good guy. He's already got three questions. He's won the wheel too many times of taking his name off. <laughs>
0: Trump would be, uh, no matter what people think about Trump, Trump would be the guy that it lands on bankrupt and he moves it one more yeah. little spot. Exactly. <laughs>
2: Five it's not, would admit, that's not what it meant. It didn't mean that. It <laughs>
0: didn't mean that. I never said what I just said. That didn't happen. Didn't In fact,
2: happen. bankrupt
1: is usually the question Major asked. Bankrupt, <laughs> of all facts. So we're just going to go ahead and ask Major to step out of the room. That's yeah, right. I find it fast. I didn't notice this ever. Has any other president had a little... Uh, little it even they did that kind of weird thing that they did no Bush, not not
2: in that in in the in, not in the mannerism of of asking or, or calling on a reporter it's it's very involved it's yeah. kind of, mm. did the room did the room laugh the first time he did it since it no was so no 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 again had to no. want to
1: <laughs> i would have died laughing i don't well. think i could have contained that one
2: well like, <laughs> So, the first time, the the first time,
0: like a magician, though. So, the first
2: time, the the first time I ever met Trump, and I write about this in my book, and it's uh, the interesting, it's part of the uh, intro to my podcast, The Takeout, which Frank has been kind enough to be on twice. Uh, The first time I met Trump was in Michigan at a rally in August of uh, 2015, and he was giving a press conference before the rally. And up until that time, he really hadn't seen network correspondence in the press pool covering him and the, and the group of reporters asking him questions so he said he comes out he stands at the podium he takes a couple of questions then he looks over to his right and he sees me and he's and the first words out of his mouth major fantastic <laughs> <He> <laughs> not because to- i'm fantastic but because i'm a network that means he's fantastic oh. i've rated network coverage now i'm I'm becoming the deal I know I am. And in my book, I describe that entire encounter because the next two sentences that Trump spoke to me revealed about 95% of who he is. And if I'd only paid closer attention to those first two sentences, I would have understood so much more about him, the trajectory of the campaign, and why he caught on. Wow,
1: that's fascinating. Because the other ones have to be seemingly coached prior to being in that room because they've been in politics so long and he's been the show host. So it's different.
2: It is. There, there is so much to unpack there. I saw I, during the campaign, I probably attended at least 70 Trump rallies, maybe more.
0: Is it weird before you go on? Is it weird to say rally? uh,
2: I've never, I've
0: never thought of a politician having a rally, especially while they're president before the word rally Mm -hmm. just feels beneath the president to me. And I'm not saying that politically in any way for people, but it's weird to me that word even comes up. So you're coming. Okay.
2: It is. It is strange. And it was a phenomenon during the campaign. It's a phenomenon of the presidency. And it is very real. And now I covered the uh, Obama Clinton campaign of 2007 and 2008. Senator Obama at the time also drew enormous crowds, enormous crowds. I was in Denver one time uh, near the state Capitol with Senator Obama. There were at least 60,000 people. It was insane. It was just everywhere, everywhere you looked, a rhapsodic adulation for Senator Obama. I'd never seen a, a presidential campaign attract that kind of response until then again president trump and the one point i always make to people is if you think that the rallies and the huge crowds remember when he was accepted the nomination of the democratic party he moved it to invesco field in denver a stadium of eighty thousand people that if you think that's a radiant expression of democracy because so many people are there don't denigrate trump rallies because people are doing the same thing but it's on the other side of the political spectrum Both are expressions of democracy in this country, and if you love one, you better have respect for the other. I'm not saying you need to agree with it, but you need to respect it as their perspective and they're showing up. And when you see people, as I did in city after city after city of this country, show up seven hours, nine hours, 12 hours early to see Donald Trump and stand in 80 degree, 90 degree, 100 degree temperatures, or... 25 degree temperatures for hour upon hour to go inside an arena where they stand and they maybe they might get a bottle of water, no popcorn, no hot dogs, nothing (laughs) for a political event. It was I'd never seen it until the only time I'd seen anything like it was Senator Obama in 2008 and then again in 2016. The rally concept is the celebrification of the American presidency. And this idea of branding, this idea of being beyond party, beyond ideology, and being a persona. Barack Obama and Donald Trump are personas. They were personas. And people not only poured their aspirations, their beliefs, their hopes into that vessel, both of them intentionally put a fillable vessel in front of them. Hope and change. You can pour a lot into that. Make America great again. You can pour just about anything into that vessel. Both of those vessels, hope and change, make America great again. They were in their own ways these perfect places in which personas could mobilize, energize, and incentivize people to participate in politics, in many cases, who hadn't participated in a while. Several Obama supporters I met along the way had sort of given up on politics on the left, California's different on the right or center right or libertarian right they'd given up on politics Trump spoke to them in a way that got them back in There's something relevant about that and I don't people ask me all the time who do you want to win I don't care They're astonished when I say that I don't care You don't care who's the president No You know why? Cuz I can't
1: <laughs> But you do you but As a you, citizen I vote but- yeah. But that's it. And, and not to say what you vote for, or where you lean, because it's not going to matter. Mm-mm. Do you do you feel that people because t- my belief is that people put too much on what federal politics can do for them? Yes. And yes. The attitude you have, which is take care of yourself. And I know personal responsibility will never be a thing, but pay attention to your local reps. My argument to everybody when they're like, oh, Washington, President Trump, blah, 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 Obama. Right. I'm like, who's your local representative? Because if right. you don't know, the conversation's
2: over. So quick, quick story about this in COVID-19. Maybe one of the most important public officials in our entire country was the health advisor in Santa Clara County. You want to know why? Yeah. Because that person said, we need a shutdown order. Really? Before anyone else. Santa Clara County was the first county in America that did anything on shutdowns. That led Gavin Newsom, which led Governor Cuomo, which led to this daisy chain. At the local official dealing with localized data and a sensitivity to what this might be, making a call, making the decision for a local community. My hometown of San Diego, which I love, uh, I'm a Californian, not a Washingtonian, and I'm a San Diegan within California. My hometown was very aggressive about nobody on the beach, nobody on the boardwalk, you can't go, we're shutting down. And now, even now, as things have reopened, San Diegans are going to each other and saying, hey, man, don't sit on the beach. You go to the water or you get out. And that's it because we're trying to keep control. We're trying to keep a handle on this. Locality is where all these decisions are best formulated and best enforced and best communicated. And the thing I always tell people about federal politicians, whether they're members of Congress, the Senate, the president, they're not worth it, man. You invest so much of your life. You invest so much of your psychic energy in this whole thing. They're not oh. worth it. Trust me. They don't think about you that way. No. And do you? They're feel not that? obsessed about you. They ain't even close obsessed about you the way you're obsessed about them. Is there a slight and, amount of
1: guilt that comes with that, considering what you do is perpetuating the federal stance?
2: Well, look, it's I, a great question, and I'm not being cynical no, about that. that. Gift cards. Um, <laughs> because television and my medium, the medium I'm currently in hyper-personalizes the presidency. It makes it more intimate than it actually is. It makes you feel like you live with the president, and you don't. You just don't. But it feels and looks like you do, because we see him every day. They're in our living room. They're on our phones. They're everywhere, especially this one. So the media does perpetuate this idea of a false intimacy in ways that were never true in the 19th century, most of the 20th century. Television has changed all of that and created this psychic bond that's both very enlivening at the front end and dispiriting at the back end. We fatigue of presidents because we're just, I'm tired of hearing that voice. I'm tired of seeing that face. That happens, overexposure. The one thing about Trump that fascinates me is that he never believes there's an overexposure quotient. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't. And he never worries about that. Yeah. And the the one thing I will say about Trump as a political person, he doesn't worry about half the things that most politicians worry about. Now, I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just true. He doesn't worry about overexposure. He doesn't worry about bleeding people sort of of their psychic energy. He doesn't worry about any of those things. He doesn't worry about a sense of consistency. He doesn't worry about fact checking. All the things that lots of politicians I've grown and watched are always flinty and hesitant and herky about. He doesn't, Invince any of that. He doesn't give any sense at all other than perpetual stony physicality and confidence, which I think is the way he made his bones in real estate. And he just carries that in politics to an amazingly successful degree. And I'm not saying it as praise, I'm just saying that as (laughs) it's a fact. You called on yourself, Frank. I I did, I did. I continue. Please continue. (laughs)
0: is there a president I know this is like you just said all these presidents give the aura give off the aura or whatever that you you know that could be your friend or something like that is there ever been a president that you feel like you could hang out with if the if all the, the 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 you know the walls were down and everything if there's somebody that you go hey I could I could have dinner with this person and feel like it's a normal conversation
2: not really <laughs> <laughs> and and that's and that's not uh an observation about any president I've covered um it's it's the the distance between the office even and someone as close to it as I am you can't know you just can't know uh the pressures of the office and how it changes you now I, I've had conversations with presidents after they left office and of course those conversations off the record are much more gentle and they're they're kind of wandering and they have an ease and a comfort to them and that's certainly enjoyable it it's a ratification that that my hard work is respected by people who've held the highest office in the land but i still know there's a distance there's always going to be a distance are they different people after they're out of office i think so i think every i think (laughs) ask yourself this you may have had this experience. I certainly have had as a journalist because I watched this very closely, but you might've had this experience also. You see someone who's giving their I've lost and I'm getting out of the race speech. And you think to yourself, God, that's so good. Yeah. Where was that? Uh-huh. Where, where, where was that when you were actually fighting for my vote? Where was that person? That humble, that reflective, that larger philosophical person who's trying to put this horrible personal defeat into context, where was that? People on the other side of something are different and the pressures of politics and the calculations of politics and the things you're trying to achieve in politics do change you. And when you're on the other side of it and you're not living with that psychic energy and that psychic exhaustion of trying to make those things happen, you have a different breathing pattern and a different perspective. The one thing I will say about people who were in politics, who did have a perspective on it that was different. I've said this before, Bob Dole and Bob Kerry, when I covered them in Congress, both had a kind of wise acre attitude about political interaction with reporters and their other political opponents because they had both been horribly injured in war. And they knew, Hey, this stuff, What's in front of us, guys? This ain't it. I've lived through the it. (laughs) The it where you don't know from one second to another if you're going to live or die. Or the guy next to you is going to live or die. or you are going to have a limb or not? Or now that I've been shattered, am I going to recover? And in what sense of myself am I going to recover? That's the it. All this other stuff, all this political pugilism and press releases and speeches and fainting and dodging and accusing and whatever. Yeah, it's fun. It's sport. It's part of the process, but it ain't the thing.
3: <laughs> How many of a f- perspective you know,
2: you- about it, which taught me a lot about politics? Go ahead, Scott.
3: You know, you, you talked about being uh, going to Missouri was such a uh, cataclysmic event mm-hmm. and kind of changing your view. And that's why I've told Frank before, I just think you're the best You And I don't feel like you represent the right wing or the left wing or anything. I just feel like you represent, you have some knowledge. You didn't just go to Syracuse or Northwestern or wherever, most of them, Harvard, wherever they pop out of, you know, and you're a print journalist too. So you come at things in a more intellectual way or at least a more connected way, I feel like, to fly over country. Do you feel some of that even though you've been in D.C.? Do you try to pull back? to that time or?
2: I do. And, and um, I, I, I try always to think about a story uh, the way my friends would think about it or the way my mother or my father would think about it and, and, and not. So you have to understand the language and you have to live within the language and you have to work and interact with people and because there's a tremendous amount in Washington DC and in New York of the sort of Eastern establishment thing, the vibe, the Harvard, the Yale, the Princeton, I don't have any of that in my bloodstream at all. I'm a public school kid from San Diego. There's not a single journalist in my family in a hundred miles. Nobody is in my family ever aspired to this work at all. Uh, So I'm a tremendous oddity in that sense, but I've always tried to keep that a, a degree of that innocence and a degree of that. Well, what is this? what is this really about and how does it translate to the life I live in? And I, I was happy enough to be in a place like Columbia, Missouri, and I'd never been to the Midwest. So I, I drove around and I like, what is, what is this farm life? What I knew nothing about that. I learned a little bit of that in West Texas. Um, I learned a little bit about that uh, in the rural areas outside of Houston. When I was a general assignment reporter, I tried to, pull the perspective in that was just a little bit less than this East coast establishment. And look, the East coast establishment in a lot of ways, as it will tell you over and over and over again, built this country. Okay, fine, whatever, um, built and protected and refined this country. Okay. Whatever Eastern establishment, but Californians (laughs) gave it its actual panache and its sense of adventure and its sense of creativity. So I add that on my side of the ledger. I've always tried to land somewhere in between. And say, does this story make sense in the middle of the country where I went to school? Does it make sense to people that I met in my fraternity who came from all different parts of the Midwest? And I'm not perfect at that. I'm, I'm, I miss the mark, but I try. I do try. And I hope that's been observable in my career. Um, I know in this business that you're only, this is, a, this is the cliche and cliches are true. You're only as good as your last story and you're only as good as your last interview. And you're only as good as your last effort. And I've just tried to make those efforts uh, as, as as good as they can be.
1: How does San Diego go to Missouri? What kind of horrible misstep was that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So um, this is where one voice uh, from one person who gave a crap made a huge difference. So like a lot of kids who thought about journalism in high school, I worked on the newspaper and I worked on the yearbook. And my yearbook advisor happened to have been an art student at the university of Missouri. And he thought I had some promise. And one day in what can only be described as a glancing conversation, he said, you know, you might want to think about the university of Missouri. I'll just drop it. I'll just leave it at that. That was it. And there are moments in life and I don't want to get uh sort of, Cinematic or poetic here, but I think there are moments in life when you have to listen to that small voice in the back of your head that says, "Hey, listen to that. There's something had just happened there. Something just happened, and you better John, pay gonna, attention."
3: And, and yeah. as a as a comedian who has performed, and Frank's been to almost every college in America. He used to. That's what he used to do when he got early in his career. I can tell you, I would always say that the University of Missouri had. One of the top two levels of beautiful women at mm-hmm. their university. I know you can't get into that, probably, but <laughs> I'm just telling you, it was craziness when I would go and perform at the Deja Vu, yes. which was a comedy club, yes, not and i'm kind of a meat market bar, not where definitely. All right, I'll ask Scott's for question
1: for him since he's beating around the bush. You slayed it in Missouri, is what we're here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Did you frost it? major major did you ever do this with a co-ed i pick
2: you <laughs> <laughs> let's let, let's just say this let's Maybe. just say this if you've been to columbia missouri there's a college a woman's college there named stevens one time i was coming down the fire escape at 7 a.m and i got a honk from the traveling bus driver coming by <laughs> and then you nailed the bus driver <laughs>
3: what a
0: fantastic <laughs>
2: story
3: Praisiness. <laughs> Praisiness. Praisiness story ever! <laughs>
1: all right we are going to bring in uh we have we have a journalism Wait, frank studio. i got one more we okay, have sure to yeah, yeah. Gets here. Sorry. you have to do an impression of one of the presidents you've covered or all of them
2: I can't. No, no, I can't. Oh, I, I'm, I don't have. I don't have those chops. No, no. But no, you still no. have a voice. You do for one of them
1: when you're explaining to somebody what he said. Do you not? No, like, no, so, like every has so, got a voice. So, so,
2: so. Look, uh, he's long forgotten, uh, but it was part of the first campaign I ever covered, Ross Perot. Yeah. All right. Now that's just Mickey Mouse tall salad. <laughs> <laughs> In a great phrase. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. you didn't come home you didn't come home the night barack and you got into your argument and
2: go oh this guy thinks he's so important no 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 i'm still trying to get the splinters out of my forehead (laughs) (laughs) how how
0: devastated were you or you after that camera the the uh, cut cam goes off you and you go home and what what goes through your mind like oh god because you said three days Mm -hmm. you're just living that and people are coming i find it ironic that what i really like about you is everything you've talked about on this show today you don't become part of the story you don't try to be but the irony is not becoming part of the story and not giving any facial expression there you became the story and it's not what you wanted and i see people i see people constantly we talk about on this show quite a bit if there's one thing in news that drives me nuts It's the news and opinion people in news talking about the other people that are in opinion news now, which when I was coming out, I went to the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, doing broadcasting school. They said, don't become part of the story. And it's everything that you are. And it's it's what I actually liked about journalism, but saw that it wasn't there anywhere. Pretty, you know, it was not not very prevalent, at least. Right. And I do see it in you. And I love that. But I see these circus, you know, the circus. It's so easy to become part of the circus watching Trump because he's the circus. He wants it to be a circus. I don't care where people are politically. He wants it to be the circus. A lot of the media plays into that and becomes the circus as well. And when you have two battling circuses, the guy who's P.T. Barnum is going to win that circus, going to win that. But you you are in the midst of that you do this, you do what you believe is right. And I, I totally agree. I didn't even think about how you do, you know, emotion, nothing. You just take it. And you, I remember, I can see going through your mind. How long is this going to be? I, I can, I, I remember the moment. I haven't watched it since then. Probably I recalled it a little bit, but you go home and do what?
2: <laughs> uh, everything I did the day before. I mean, I, I didn't change anything. Um, but I you don't che- worry. This is going to affect me negatively, positively.
0: No. You, nothing goes through your head. You're on the eggshells, the Zippo lighter. That's all. No, phew.
2: no. And uh, I got some feedback from the network, of course, because it was an enormous moment and people were paying attention to it. And They were positive.
0: They like that, though,
2: right? The network. They, they, likes they, that. All the people that mattered said we have no problem with that. You did what you did. You did all what you believed was important in the moment now the next morning and i write about this in my book charlie rose who was then uh one of the co-anchors of cbs this morning said you know major we've all asked questions that we would like to rephrase would you like to rephrase that question no said that <laughs> live on air no no regrets and then i went to explain that I, about this misgivings that i'd had about this whole approach to not talking about American hostages and people in captivity. And here's the best part of all of this. And this is not about me at all, but it's about the importance of a question and the importance of that stage and the importance of the presidency in America. Again, not about me, but what that question did was elevate this whole issue. And from that point forward, as everyone close to President Obama would readily acknowledge and have publicly since, Every time the president talked about the Iran nuclear deal after that press conference, he mentioned the four Americans in captivity. And I had on my show the takeout. You can go to our archives, takeoutpodcast.com. You can find Jason Resign, the Washington Post bureau chief in Tehran, who was in captivity, said one of the happiest days of his life in captivity, was hearing about this question and President Obama's angry reaction because he thought it was something that might help him overall. Now – in that podcast, he also explains that his mother was very mad at me because his mother thought that President Obama was doing everything he could do, so even the family was divided on this question. Wow, you know but that's, real, that's the real world um, and I've heard from people with uh, related to or emissaries for the other three Americans who were in captivity who were pleased that that was at least raised, and there was some pressure applied. I wasn't trying to fix anything. I was just trying to do something that in my own sense of journalistic self in that moment felt the best and most important thing to do. And I'll live with it, uh, before in the, in the, in the midst of it and afterwards, Scott, did you have anything else?
0: The One other question I had
3: was, I think we all would think that Joe Biden didn't have the greatest, uh, campaign. And then it all kind of came together for him. And a lot yeah. of people thought he's not on his a game. And then I listened to your takeout podcast with him and I thought he was dynamite on it. And I, it made me think, is he kind of recharging his batteries since he's not out there? Is this almost been a good thing for him? I'd be curious of your analysis.
2: So that was a conversation that we had as part of an interview that was for the CBS evening news. Uh, it was very early on in the COVID-19 experience. And Uh, I've covered Joe Biden for almost 25 years. I covered him when he was in Congress. I covered him when he was the vice president. Perhaps he felt that there was a seriousness and a sense of purpose or uh, something that we had that he knew me and was therefore more comfortable. I don't know. Um, Being around politicians, they sometimes get in a different mindset I try to put a lot of different questions to him on a lot of different metrics, but I've seen other interviews after that. I'm like, wow, that's really rough. God, that sounds awful. What is up with Biden is, you know, and, um, I always put that in the hands of the voters. Um, but in that process with that interview, I was really just trying to assess where are you coming from on a lot of different issues. If you were president right now, what would your metrics be? What would you be looking for? How would you communicate to the nation about what is or isn't important? I asked him a very simple question, do these briefings, and it was early on in the coronavirus task force briefings where the president was a pretty constant presence. I said, are they enhancing or diminishing his credibility? Biden wouldn't take it. He said, look, I just wish he would hand it off to the medical experts. Well, that never happened, but that was Biden's perspective. Everything in 2020 in terms of politics, our level of adaptation personally, our economic well-being is evolving before our eyes. We are in a moment unlike any I've ever seen. And trust me, I was with President George W. Bush in Sarasota, Florida, the morning of 9-11. I was witness to... The moment in American history, at least in the modern era, where that pyramid atop which the president sits, and the pyramid is the cumulative information that the president can call upon, went like this. And the president and all the rest of us were basically in the same spot. We didn't know what was coming next. We didn't know what the next hour would bring because I looked at all those white house officials in sarasota I'm like what's up what, what 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 are we doing what's happening we're trying to figure it out we're trying to we're trying to gauge we're try, we'll let you know we'll let you know we'll let you know and it wasn't we know we'll let you know when we want to know it was like we don't know we'll let you know when we have a sense of it huh. wow so I've been through these I've been through these moments I have some experience with that. Um, So the, 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 the time we're living through now is evolving before our eyes. We're reopening. What does that mean? What's the risk? How do we assess it? How do we measure it? Then after we measure it, what do we do about it? I swear to God, we're as a government at the local, state, and federal level trying to figure that out day by day. As individuals, we're trying to figure it out. I leave this apartment that I'm in right now three times a week to go for a run. That's it. I never leave. I've been in my, I've been in this apartment for eight weeks. I've barely been on CBS news TV wise. Why? Because they don't really need the analytical perspective of the chief Washington correspondent right now. It's not an analytical time. You know, I'm not Eric Severide with the sort of, you know, 45 second editorial on where America is who the hell knows where we are <laughs> we yeah. are adapting as human beings within this construct of a federal republic with community powers local powers state powers and federal powers all trying to figure this out and biden is in the middle of that and trump is the central figure in that and everything i believe in 2020 is going to be measured through the prism not of the th- previous 3 years of the trump presidency but the pandemic months of the Trump president.
1: Yeah. Wow. That was beautiful.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <Have> you changed, <laughs> had you changed some of the... That was awesome. That was yeah, great.
2: Really is it. the drink. He's and done. it's been I drained. Know. Okay. I want you some credit. Know. I want some yeah. extra credit, bros. That's great. <laughs> I always get
1: yelled at on this show when I drink full bottles of alcohol while we're doing it. <laughs> but I never come up with anything that good. That's why. That was great. Do you see...
0: I, that was great. I, 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 it was fantastic. And... This is one little question. Do you see through your eyes, which I, I have told you on your podcast, we talked a little bit about here being being very objective, although human. Do you see politics seeping into how this COVID stuff works and the lockdown? And Because sure. we've talked sure. about it a couple of times we, on the podcast. And we, we get lost because we don't have enough information. Nobody has enough information. No. But you go, geez, I let's say we lock down and everybody stays home and we're all pro stay home, you know, right now, especially, and we feel people getting antsy and you start to worry, you know, you give somebody an inch, they take a mile. You say, okay, you can go outside. Suddenly people are congregating in big groups, right. and not paying any attention. And then they're governing for the idiots. Right. And then we, as smarter people, you know, it's like the, it's always what they tell my kids go to public school, but a lot of the public school classes, you go to the regular class and it's for its lowest common denominator. Then you go into the higher level classes, the advanced classes and the AP and stuff. And, and my kids are on the lower end of that. and They're like, this is so hard. There's not even a middle. There's not even where yeah. a, an over average kid can go. They can either go get the B with the weighted A or they can go do nothing in their class and easily get an A. But we're governing for the idiots. And we, as I think people who can think through things, get stuck in the middle there sometimes. Hey, it's we're you know, everybody's not out at that Jacksonville beach or whatever. Right. Uh, but then I, I, one of my favorite moments was California opens up slightly, and then everybody's at the beach in California. And I'm right. going, see, you're not better than everybody.
2: Parts of California, yeah, right? Right. So, yeah. so look, the genius of America is randomized idiocy. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, <laughs> I, I, there are things in which I'm an idiot, and there are things in which I'm brilliant. And and one of the one of the great things about America is we allow for that bandwidth. We allow people to be prescient and genius and idiots at the same times, in different things. There are, there are people who can take a car apart and put it back together, and they're a genius, but they may not social distance. Okay, that's America. Alexis Tocqueville wrote about this. Alexis Tocqueville wrote about this. This, this idea, this, this, this amazing combination of, of ideas and perspectives and attitudes, and now even in, in, happily in 21st century America, diversity – and ways in which we talk about things and commingle things happen. And we are allowed to be intuitive and smart, but also idiots. And we take cues from each other. And that's where this is very difficult. Every governor, every mayor is trying to say, here's my approach and here's what I want you to take on board In psychology. That's one of the key concepts. What do you, what are you willing to take on board? What are you willing to bring into your consciousness that you haven't brought in yet? I know this because, uh, late in life, probably much later than I should have, I've taken on a therapist to say, how how do I approach the, the stresses of my life? And how do I contextualize all these things that I talked about, this sort of eggshell childhood and asking hard questions of fathers of our country. What, how do I put it all in perspective? So we're all trying to work all that out. And I was just asked by my alma mater to um, give some words of wisdom to the graduating class of 2020. And I said, look, write all this down. You're living in a moment that is unimaginable of massive constant, every hour, every day human adaptation in the freest, most interactive, most combustible country that currently exists. The combustibility is maybe an asset, maybe a negative. But our energy and our adaptation and our questions and our willingness to question things and our willingness to go in different directions and then reverse course is a strength. None of that might have made any sense whatsoever, but (laughs) it's about where we are, where science tells us a few things, but even the scientists say, you know what? We've got to be really humble because this virus and the signals it sends us keep changing or if not keep changing, move over here and then they move back over here. And we've got to be humble about what we know. And most importantly, what we don't know. And you talked to me about this about 20 minutes ago, Frank, about my approach to journalism. I try also to be humble about what I don't know. And humble about bringing my audience along with that which I don't know. And I've oftentimes in live shots said I don't know. Because I don't want to kid people about something I don't know because they will see through it. And they'll stop listening to me. And when I've been in my television career, to whatever degree this matters, and it probably doesn't matter at all, I've wanted to be one of those people that if someone was in an office and their television was on the news and it was on mute, if I showed up, they went and turned the volume up. That's all I've ever tried to do. I want to hear that. I want to hear that perspective. And if I've ever achieved that, then I feel like I've done my job. I awesome.
0: with you. I am so worried that when we interview Shaq, it's gonna be exactly the same.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like we're doing the same, we're gonna be doing the same podcast twice. Let's transcribe all the questions we ask Major and ask Shaq the same thing.
2: <laughs> a true legend, a true legend yeah. and not a myth. I'm I'm a phony legend and a phony myth. Shaq is all that and a bag of chips. We can I figure that out, out with the general. <laughs> I, have to to the general.
1: Go. I hate i hate prolonging this and taking up more of your no, time
2: no no please
1: what can what can you tell us sitting out here watching you from the inside that we're not getting that that's right in front of us that we should not some secret you know geopolitical thing just some general sense of hey society this is how the game's played don't fret kind of advice
2: yeah so um I read, right before the pandemic, I I caught up to a book that I should have read a long time ago called The Big Sort, not The Big Short, The Big Sort, and it was a sociological data-driven book about how long before the politicians began to sort us by ideology in red and blue, we began to sort ourselves into like-minded communities, like-minded localities, Places like Austin being fundamentally different from places like Amarillo in Texas, where I started my career and enclaves where people on listservs could instantly find out whether they fit or didn't fit. And if they didn't fit, they pretty much moved to places where they do fit. There's been lots of different journalistic articles written about, well, what's the concentration of a Whole Foods market versus the concentration of a Cracker Barrel? And what does that tell us about politics? We've been sorting ourselves. And I had a long conversation on my podcast about a year and a half ago with a guy named Mark Penn, who was uh, an advisor to Bill Clinton. He did a lot of work for Microsoft. He's very data driven. And he said, you know, the whole assumption about the Internet in its early days was it would bring us all together. And what it's done is it's made us move farther apart and create silos in our lives. The great mystery And the great energy of our country is our ability to disagree and disagree strongly, but in the end, pull ourselves together for the greater good. Even before the Constitution was ratified, we argued over, under the Articles of Confederation, states' rights, and whether or not we should pay the Continental Army that beat the greatest empire known to mankind, the British Empire. We couldn't even decide how to pay them or whether to pay them. So disagreements regionally, over money, over purpose, have been a part of our country ever. We should not hold ourselves in disrepute because of that. We've always disagreed. But over time, we figured out a way to lock our arms and push the greater purpose of our country and its example globally above ourselves. Most politicians won't ask you to do that, and if they do, they will ask it in a very cynical and short-term way. The greatness of our country is our ability to not rely on politicians to teach us that or ask us to do that but to do it ourselves. And the more we do that, the better we are. That's my answer. There you go. Perfect. Yeah,
0: I, I'm starting to get weird when we bring smart people on like this, because I've never felt <laughs> <Yeah>. dumber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to bring in, uh, we have a journalism student, Sean Salahi, who I met in a, an airport. He's part of the podcast. He has two jobs. One is to, <laughs> here you go. One of the <laughs> <laughs> oh, you zigzagged on it.
1: Oh, if you only had a magic wand. Wait a minute. Let me do this. Yeah. There it is. Yes. Is that Bombay, Gareth? I can't see it. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. What is that one?
2: Roku Jin from Japan. Okay. On it. Sorry. By the way, before,
0: before we. A little get aside. B- quickly. Uh... And I gotta believe you started drinking before we started this podcast too. Um, uh, started? no me. <laughs> oh.
1: <laughs> that is
2: a continuous pattern of my life, <laughs> Mr. Van Kelly. No,
0: this is this has been fantastic. I mean, I've learned I've <laughs> learned a ton. Uh, I, just a quick, uh, and I know you've been uh, obviously asked this question, but I don't know the answer to it, and I just thought of it quickly. Major, where does that name come from, Major?
2: My father's name is my grandfather's name. It has no great story behind it. It's one of the most boring stories you'll ever hear. I've got to believe you
0: could make it good, though.
2: (laughs) Uh, My great-grandfather was at Southern Methodist University, uh, which is Dallas, uh, probably not long after it was uh, open. And back way back in those days, as colleges were organized, uh, you were assigned a roommate for four years. And if you didn't like it, you were invited to leave. Uh, So that was it. So my great-great-grandfather... Uh, my great-grandfather rather, was assigned a roommate as a freshman, and it was his roommate for four years. That roommate's surname, meaning his last name, was Major, and he became my great-grandfather's best friend. So in honor of him, when my grandfather was born, he named him Major. His middle name was Talmadge, Major Talmadge Garrett. Then my father, Major Edward Garrett, and I Major Elliot Garrett. Uh, so, three generations of majors. We have different middle names. So, I'm not a second or a third. I'm not an Esquire. I'm not any of that crap. Uh, but we all have the distinct, semi, semi, semi distinctive name of major. Uh, my son, however, is named Luke. So, because you're a <laughs> fan. If, Trump, Wars if
1: Trump ever finds out about that, he's going to go, Major Junior Junior. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. So, Sean Salehi, I met him at an airport years ago. Uh, no, not years ago. About a year ago, probably now. Right. Hey, uh, Sean.
4: Like eight months. Eight
0: eight months ago, he's a journalism major at the
2: Cronkite School at ASU. Yes, phenomenal school, phenomenal school.
4: Did you Did you graduate yet? Uh, Technically, next Tuesday. Next Tuesday.
2: Congratulations, Washington Capitals. Love it.
4: Yeah, I'm a D. I'm from Washington D.C.
2: Fantastic, Sean. Great to meet you. So please talk slowly
0: so we bring uh, him in we he's got two jobs one is to ask a question uh and uh, uh show his uh, journalism professors how much better he is than all the other students uh because he gets a great interview he gets part be part of great interviews and uh and with a guy who can't speak and, and maybe i've been drinking here too the whole time <laughs> hey major God, great hope story so. about your great grandpa <laughs> <laughs> Um, and his other job is to, to to go through some references we've made throughout the show. If you want
2: to stick, yes, I right, take notes. Yes. yes, You must have been so busy during the Dennis Miller episode. Oh, <laughs> oh he, my
0: god, he was gone for that, right? Yeah. Like, go, no rear app?
2: Window. What's that movie? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, I love that you've paid attention to our podcast. Yeah, that,
1: that that's the best part so far. What
0: what With would the be body, great as it, the body
1: the wall? Where's the body?
0: Uh, what would be great is if Donald Trump is like, so major, have you been paying attention to any media lately? <laughs> uh, like a certain <laughs> podcast.
2: <laughs> um, All right. So got, Sean- I, wait, wait, I got to stop before, before Sean takes over Scott, I just got to tell you, I love you because uh, as a native of San Diego, I love everything AFL because the San yes, Diego chargers were first the Los Angeles chargers for one year. Baron Hilton sold them out of Los Angeles, came down to San Diego I love everything, the AFL, so I love that poster right over your left shoulder.
3: Back to the Dallas Texans and Mm -hmm. everybody. What about Harry and Steve
0: behind (laughs) Joe? Harry and Steve. (laughs) Steve
2: Stone. (laughs) Take me out of the ball game.
1: (laughs) There we go. You don't need any questions. Uh, What's your question, Sean? Sean, Um,
4: go on. You're on. My question is, with the polarization of current American politics, we've been told at the Cronkite School that now is one of the most important times in our nation's history to become a journalist, try to cut through the different versions of the same story that you see reported every day. What advice would you give to young journalists trying to enter this profession during such strange times, especially now, but also just given the current political climate?
1: So, Under the rap get out run i'm sorry you asked major i'm sorry
2: <laughs> get out go run for your lives be an attorney are you kidding me there's a litigation waterfall coming go to law school marry um, a rich
1: woman or man nobody's judging just do it, <laughs> it
2: yes um yeah be barbara stanwick and lady eve um <laughs> <laughs> write that down. Yeah. <laughs> That's a Dennis Millerism right there, folks. I mean, that was
0: fantastic major. <laughs> that was some major Garrett popcorn fuel right there.
2: <laughs> so so there there are essentially two questions that you asked. Um because there's the can I get a job part of that question? And then if I get a job, what do I do with it? And the getting a job part is a huge issue right now, because for several years, commercial journalism has been under tremendous stress at the local television level, at the local newspaper level. Everyone is trying to figure out a way in which to keep either newspapers alive or TV stations alive and keep local journalism alive. And nobody has figured that out. Nobody's figured out what I like to call the price point of portability. What are people willing to pay to have portable news that they are invested in? And yes, the New York Times is making a lot of money, but as Ben Smith, its newest ombudsman wrote, New York Times may be killing local journalism because everyone's paying for the New York Times and nothing else. Local journalism has to exist on some kind of format that is recognizable and responsive to the community in which it serves. I'm living this right now because my son has just graduated from the university of San Diego. He has a degree in philosophy and physics and wants to be a reporter. I'm like, okay, that's not exactly the most, uh, linear path. Son, but he wants to do it. And the job market now, I don't need to tell you, Sean is what's the word I'm looking for. A baron. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Because, even cheap reporters are unaffordable, and I'm not a cheap reporter. And I worry about my own longevity. Frank, on my show, and I were talking about what's the longevity of the lives we're currently living. We're Frank's a little bit nervous about it. Trust me, I'm a little nervous about it. But at the entry level, you have to be nervous about it. As well, can you get in? Can you get into this business? That's a, that's that's like the threshold question. Can you get in? And then once you get in, what do you do? Do you become a brand or do you become a journalist? And I think those two things can live in a little bit of opposition to one another because being a brand means being highly personalized and being part of the story and being visible and being catchy and noticeable. Well, is that where, where the facts are? I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm very old school. My sensibilities may not be, in touch with the times of that branding, especially on social media. And yet, I'm reinforced by one thing that's happened during this virus. And this is going to be a kind of a stretch, but follow me. I know better than anyone how much this current administration and this current presidency disdained and hated the James S. Brady briefing room. How much it never wanted to appear there. How much it never wanted to bow down to the reporters who had who sat there and occupied that room and ask or answer their questions that they asked. And yet where did it go in the deepest waters of this crisis? Where did it go? to the briefing room why 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 not because they love the reporters, Not because they love the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. In fact, the president hates on them all the time or CBS News or NBC or ABC or Reuters. But because in a moment of crisis, that place and that visual communicated a seriousness of purpose, a seriousness of activity and a seriousness of responsiveness. Now, it didn't last forever, but it lasted much longer than this administration ever intended it to. So that tells me the pillars, the centrality of basic journalistic functions matter. And even an administration that wants to destroy them, or if not destroy them, denigrate them and dismiss them, can't. That tells me that there is some long-term play in what we do even amid economic uncertainties and existential uncertainties about the value of journalism. And nothing pleases me more than when people come up to me as they did before COVID-19 at an airport or a train station to say one thing. Keep doing what you're doing. It matters. And thank you. Yeah. Awesome. It does I'll yeah. tell you, it does Sean.
0: Sean thought he had an in in journalism right now until he found out you had a son who
3: is
2: he's a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: I, I can't compare with the philosophy major.
1: That's for sure. Yeah,
2: <laughs> he's right, struggling okay. just like you, Sean. He's got nothing. You know, yeah. it's funny because
1: <laughs> having been in radio for twenty years and doing that, um, and being pretty, pretty secure in what I do, which is basically just fart jokes and silliness, but after twenty years, you got to figure I've done something right and i still think the only thing hold everybody always just dis- you know dismisses radio like they do publications papers and everything else saying ah it's past it's this and that like we're looking so hard for the next thing yeah you'll never you'll never replace it you'll replace its delivery system you'll never replace its necessity the conduit of locality and the conduit of information can't break someone will build it again quickly if it does and that's what's amazing about what you just said it's it's uh I always feel like that's a personal thing, but it isn't. I guess that's in in almost everyone's life.
2: Right. So let me tell you what I'm going through right here, right now. So as I mentioned earlier, um, I'm not on TV very much right now. Anyone who watches CBS can tell that. I've been on TV once in the last six weeks. Am I freaked out? No. I've got my podcast to take out, and I've created a daily podcast called Debriefing the Briefing, which used to be about breaking down the daily White House briefing on the coronavirus. Now it's about whatever developments happen with coronavirus. It's on more than 100 radio stations around the country. Most people within the CBS construct are necessarily focused on the television side of the business. And what I'm creating over here and what I'm doing, let's say, is not of dominant importance, but it's about the future. And it's still about this craft and this work that I do and this work that I value and what I bring to it. And I will find that audience. And to something we talked about on my show, Frank, and Dennis Miller said to you, know what you do, know how well you do it and live on that and nothing else. And that's where I'm trying to be.
1: It's perfect.
2: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, so you, I want to just
0: make sure we get these uh, yeah, the round of applause. Um, you have, uh, the book is, uh, Mr. Trump's wild ride. Yes. And will be, which uh, hasn't uh,
2: sold at all. Really? No. Uh, so, so you see, so what you see behind me is a little, is a little bit of my living room. Just to my left is a stack of 25 boxes in which there are 20 books <laughs> of my book. You know why I have them? Because my book has gone to where they call in the publishing world, the remainder file. What does that mean? That means the publisher printed far more books than were actually sold. So the author can, at a great and steep discount, buy lots of copies for themselves, (laughs) which I have done. So I have a monument to my publishing failure, (laughs) just to my left. Uh. (laughs) A stacked monument to my failure, just to my left. Well,
1: send them to us and we'll have Frank read them
2: yeah yeah we'll read we'll read we'll read
0: excerpts as we'll trump. Do excerpts
1: every day yeah as- as that'll be trump. how
0: we start the show john and i'll trump them up yeah. we'll even have bernie read them we'll yeah, have a- i think
1: now we a- read from the book of major garrett who has many many things to say about everything he's a lot of words major i'm gonna go ahead and throw this book away like everybody else in america did
2: like everybody, <laughs> uh, major. Quick you story. Have a- I did the audio version of this book. It's the only time I've ever done an audio ver- version of a book, it was the hardest work I've ever done. It's Brutal. It's it's rough. It's right? brutal. Yeah, and I had to do it in a really short period of time. So one session was eight hours, one was ten, one was seven, and one was five. Wow. By the by, the end of that ten hour session, I was mental. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's I need perfect. a lot of this. Awesome. This
1: is great. Yeah. <laughs> I got this.
0: <get> <laughs> and uh, the podcast takeout how the takeout yeah, Take podcast.
2: podcast, takeoutpodcast.com, and then the other podcast, debriefing the briefing. That's every single day, Monday through Friday. Uh, it's it's exactly what it says. What's happened with COVID? And where are we at the federal state level? From the eyes of a journalist, me. Outstanding.
0: Yeah, awesome. This is uh, even Great. more than I'd hoped for. If you if you want to stick around for a minute or two, less, sure. Uh, sure. Sean is going to go through the things the, oh, yeah. the references that he did or or, or didn't know actually. Okay. Um, and then I got a few from Toledo
4: in case he doesn't hit them because uh, Toledo's our producer. So
0: beautiful. Um, I'm here.
4: Go ahead, Sean. Well, really, I can't wait to hear the ones with Toledo because I tried to really pay attention this time and I could only I, I, we focus on politics for most of it. So I, right. I, I understood a large majority of that. It was really the pop ref- uh, uh, pop culture reference at the end with um, Dennis Miller. Barbara Standig, I believe was the name.
1: So. Of the <laughs> Barbara. Wait a minute. Hold on a second because Barbara Standig is in my phone right now. I can't tell you what website that is, but I follow Barbara Standig. Uh, but
0: if you listen to the right uh, podcast in the yeah. past,
1: Major, boom. I mean, you know exactly what it was. Adam Ray. Don't tell anybody you watched it. Yeah. Because she's both Barbara and a stand dick. It's an yeah. amazing website.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So my guess is that every single one of the video people I see here has been at one time or another called a stand dick in their life.
1: <laughs> Daily.
2: <laughs> okay. That's, uh, that's all Barbara. You have. That's Barbara all I have, Stanwyck.
1: So yeah. Stanwick.
4: Oh, okay. okay. I wanna I wanna hear what uh what Toledo has. Well no,
2: let's get into Barbara Stan. Well you Barbara
1: Stanwick, the reference was the Lady Eve, right? Yes. Yeah, it was, a, it
2: was a 1940s. 1940s uh, rom-com with Henry Fonda.
1: That's right. It's actually right. fantastic still.
2: Yes, and, and it talks about something that uh, was very important in the 40s and 50s and the 30s, uh, but has sort of drifted away from American life. The people who are card sharps, not sharks, sh- card sharps, which meant they would take you in a card game and intentionally take you in a card game. And the way they would take you in a card game is to lose to you initially and then clean you out over time. And it's a romantic comedy built around that. And it's very early in Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda's career. And you see the subtleties in their acting ability, even when they're very young actors and actresses. And it's a terrific movie in that sense, because you see, in glimmers of the great performances of both later on. Barbara Stanwyck is also very well known for a movie called Double Indemnity with Fred McMurray. Uh, One of my all time favorite um, sort of uh, pot boiler movies, uh, uh, noir movies. And then of course, Henry Fonda needs no explanation. Well, maybe to
3: Sean. To Sean, you would.
4: I I know who Henry Fonda is.
0: What about uh, Lebowski? You know the Lebowski? Yeah, the big Lebowski,
2: yeah. Yeah, okay, the dude. Uh,
0: uh, the dude, quinine, do you know what that reference was? Well, X- was quinine?
2: No. Quinine.
0: Quinine, yeah. Quinine. I'm sorry. Quine. I didn't even know. Quinine
2: is in tonic water, and, twi- and tonic water is what goes in a gin and tonic, and quinine is helpful for malaria, but it's also possibly helpful for COVID-19. Huh? Have we thought about maybe injecting it? Anybody think of this? Maybe just quinine. <laughs>
0: um the, 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 the malaria uh, uh medical use or is what i was actually thinking for it it's in tonic i didn't yes yeah that's that's what's in tonic yes
1: that's why that's on a why bar, the british... on a bartender's gun it's a cue on a yeah. bartender's gun that's oh, why well. the british
2: brought it to equator, the equatorial parts <laughs> of its empire and to india that's why it's the drink of the viceroy yep. <laughs> of course that's why. <laughs> <laughs> paul Sangus awesome Paul Songas, oh, senator from Massachusetts, ran for. Hold president. on, hold on. He's
0: supposed to say that he didn't oh. know it. No, he I don't. Yeah, no. He didn't write songus. it down and do his job. No.
1: <laughs> so Leahy, how would you spell songus if you were asked?
4: That's a that's S-O-N-G-A-S. a S O N G A S. Already yeah. wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I believe it.
1: Hey, I forgot the T. 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 To start, it's the Songas. Yeah. Like tsunami.
0: Yeah. Uh, how about this this term? Uh, newspaper. <laughs> 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 broadsheet, <laughs> yes,
2: broadsheet. Sure. Okay, Max <laughs> Head. <laughs> Maybe well, I, Toledo's I, I,
0: best I, joke I, ever. By the way, guys, that's
1: pretty solid.
4: Uh, my, my grandmother was one to make sure that I always read uh, at least one article in the Washington Post uh, every morning no, before
1: I went to school. So. And That's from the sounds of it, uh, Major's dad and Scott's dad always knew that there was just enough newspaper in the bottom of their kennels, for God's sakes. It's a rough exactly. upbringing.
0: Um, yeah. Let's do, let's do one more. The uh, Swiss, Swiss watch. Why Swiss, is. Sw-
2: well, or as I said it, Swiss watch? That <laughs> <Swiss watch? laughs> was a little early in important? the bottle. I was trying to adjust, yeah. okay? Yes. Why? Did, did, did you End
0: know anything about the Swiss, Swiss watch?
4: I, I just assumed it was like looking into an actual Swiss watch, like just the intricacies and the small parts of a Swiss watch.
2: Correct you are, well, sir. John well done. Very well. There you
3: go. Good job.
4: All right.
0: Well, Major, you have been incredible. This was awesome. amazing. I, yeah. I Again, I like these episodes where we get to be silly and learn a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, along the way and get uh, some insight into some places that very few people
2: uh, get to be a part of. No kidding.
4: Thank yeah. you, man. Awesome. Thank
0: you. Thank
2: you so much.
4: Thanks. Thank you.
2: All right, guys. You. Like like you, Frank, uh, I've got to live out most of my dreams and that's a great thing in life and oh. I'm appreciative of it.
4: Yeah?
0: Yeah. Unbelievable.
2: Awesome. Thank, thank, you, thank much. you, man. Thanks, guys.